0: This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy,
1: generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber.
0: Dr. John Di Martini is a world-renowned specialist in human behavior, a researcher, author, and global educator. He was selected as Top Human Behavioral Specialist of the Year for 2020 by IAOTP for his outstanding leadership and commitment to the profession. He is the founder of the DiMartini Institute, which has over 72 courses on self-development, life mastery, and leadership in, in its extensive cu- curriculum, excuse me. Dr. DiMartini's knowledge is the culmination of over 48 years of cross-disciplinary research. He's the author of over 40 self-development books, including the bestseller, The Breakthrough Experience, and his new global release, The Values Factor. He has produced an extensive library of CDs, DVDs that cover uh, topics ranging from financial mastery to business mastery, relationship development to health and healing, the art of communication to inspiring education and leadership. He's been featured in films and documentaries like The Secret. Many of us have heard of that. The Opus and Oh My God, alongside Ringo Starr Seal and Hugh Jackman. He has shared the stage with Stephen Covey, Richard Branson, Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, Donald Trump, and I'm sure the list goes on and on from there. And he's been interviewed on some of the world's leading television and radio networks like Larry King Live, The Early Show, Wall Street, and magazine publications like Shape, Leadership, Success, Prestige, Entrepreneur, and O, oh, Oprah's Magazine. I want to unmute at this point, everybody, and give a very warm, proper reception Dr. John DeMartini in three, two, one. Let him hear it, guys.
1: Dr. Yeah.
0: So, we've got, uh, we've got an amazing human being on this call. I'm very, very excited to have him here today. Uh, we're going to spend time, as we've been talking about In Ascend lately, about values, been working hard toward identifying what our values are. And this man spent decades uh, uh, on that topic. So, Dr. DeMartini, can we just start? I'm going to start with a very basic question, if I could. And that is, Why values? Why are they so important? Why have you dedicated a lifetime to exploring these? It sounds like such a basic question, but at the same time, you're one of the few people I know of that have gone as deep as you have in this area. Why is that? Why are they so important?
1: Hi, everyone. (laughs) Every human being lives moment by moment through and with a set of priorities or values, or things that are most to least important in their life, which determine their perception, their decisions, and their actions. Tell me what your values are and I'll tell you where you're headed. The hierarchy of one's values dictates their destiny. So because human behavior is a byproduct of perception, decisions, and actions, And every decision we make is based on what we believe will give us the greatest advantage or disadvantage at that particular moment to our highest values. It's a crucial foundation to study for maximizing human awareness and potential. So I came upon really the significance of human values around 43 years ago. I've been teaching for 48 going on 49, but that's when I really grasped how important they are. And when I asked people, you know, their values, their priorities, I found that many would repeat, like a parrot, the injected values of mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, morays, conventions, traditions of outer influences, instead of looking intrinsically. At what their life really truly demonstrates spontaneously. And that's when I realized that the internal conflict that people many times feel is the conflict between what they're yearning to do spontaneously within and what is expected by the conformity of the herd without. And so those distinct conflicts. We're given many names from limited beliefs to sabotage to all kinds of things. And uh, when I went down the rabbit hole a bit on this, I uncovered some real uh, simple underlying principles that a person could transcend those limitations by and allow them to go out and do something more extraordinary with their life, give themselves permission to shine, not shrink. So that's why values became so crucial. I had a woman this morning on a podcast that I was doing who said that she had a son who was uh, challenged in education and he'd been put a label on him and put on medication, which is very common. And I asked her a few navigating questions in a matter of minutes, not even minutes, seconds. And we uncovered that he didn't have a learning problem because he was accelerating his learning in this one concentrated area that was highest on his values and was quite ingenious in that area, but was not being recognized and honored because they're trying to fit him into the drone educational system for the masses and then labeling him according because he's not fitting into what everybody's expecting instead of honoring his genius. They tried to do that with Terence Dow, who is from Adelaide, Australia, He's a mathematician, one of the greatest mathematicians in the world. They tried to fit him in because all they wanted to do is count and do numbers. So they basically said, you know, he can't function in school. He won't do anything but count. Well, he is the most ingenious mathematician in the world up at the top. At age four, he was already doing things that most people couldn't do in their twenties and thirties. Seven, he was winning awards. 15, he had his PhD, everything else because they allowed him to pursue what was truly valuable to his life, instead of trying to disperse him and multitask, distract him into being somebody he wasn't. So yeah, values are very crucial in the mastery of life. And uh, people who don't know what's really important to them, many times bang their head against the wall, trying to be somebody they're not, instead of honoring who they are.
0: Make perfect sense. And I know I can speak to, for me, prior to kind of learning this work, that was something I absolutely did. It was, was, you mentioned a compilation of others' values placed upon me as opposed to truly learning what my own are. And I'm still navigating that. I'm sure all of us are. It's probably lifetime work, but give us some idea of how you do that. How do you start to understand what your genius is or what your values are? Because I, I like what you're saying, like show me somebody's values, I'll show you, I, I can't remember ex- exactly what I said, but what their future looks like. How do they navigate those values? How do you find those values and define them?
1: Well, initially 43 years ago, I um, started going into the inquiry of values, which is called axiology, the study of value and worth which is the foundation of morals and economics. It underlied both of them. But I found in the literature a projection of authoritative ideas of what values are supposed to be in society instead of what they actually are. The shoulds instead of who they are. And I wasn't satisfied with that. I made a list of all the known values that people's behaviors demonstrated initially and looked at that and found things that pretty well anybody could fall under. But I didn't like categorizing and typing people into archetypal ideas. I think putting a label on people is is minimizing their their fullness. So I started to look at how I could identify more intrinsically what their values were. And I narrowed it down to 13 primary value determinants. So maybe I can share those. And uh, this is available for whoever would like on my website, drdmartin.com. It's complimentary, it's free, it's private. So you may wanna do that when you're on your leisure time. But I I looked at first some fundamentals and I found this in aged and newborn babies. So it doesn't matter what age it is. I found out that every human being, uh, when something is intrinsically valuable to them, very valuable to them, they want to bring it closer into their life. And when something is not valuable to them, they want to discard it. In the study of proxemics, is a study of the territory around you. Things that are in your intimate and personal space are more valuable than things that go into your social and public space because you want to keep it out of your space. So the first determinant that I use is what is it that you keep in your personal and intimate space most. What are the top three items that you surround your space with? For instance, today, uh I would say computer. I spend a great deal of time within a foot and a half of my computer. Because you know, I teach every day. So I'm in front of that computer pretty well every day since COVID, particularly. And so that item, the computer, is extremely valuable to me and it, it just stays in my space. Your, your intimate space is a foot and a half. Your personal space is what you can reach with your hands, about four feet. Mm. And anything in that space that's re- within reachable, we call it the reachables, we typically keep things that are really important to us in that space. So I look at what are the top three items that you fill your personal and intimate space with most. And that wherever you go and whatever you spend most of your time, so most people are either at home or at work mm. most of the time. And so you're looking at what they fill that most, that most intimate personal space with most frequently in that space that they spend most of their time. That's a great indicator. I've seen newborn babies. If you toss something in a crib that's intriguing and valuable to the child, it'll put it in its mouth and it'll hold it and look at it and observe it and study it. But if it doesn't want it, it will kick it away, push it away, cry, scream, toss. To get it out of its space because people don't like things that aren't important to them in their space get that out of you so the first indicator is space. so i look at people's space i i did consulting for corningware corporation in, in new york many years ago and if you've been there it's a glass building the whole building is made yeah. out of glass yeah it was at the time when it was built it was amazing uh still is but it was it was cutting edge and i Showed the executive team how to determine the values of people in the cubicles that we're working there by looking at how they filled their space. So we walked into this one cubicle and there were bowling trophies everywhere, and bowling pictures, and a bowling ball on his front desk. Okay, and little quotations about bowling in front of him. Now it doesn't take a genius to see that bowling is important to this man. His life is about bowling. So he filled his space with. Then we went into the next cubicle, and there are pictures of kids everywhere. And when I see kids everywhere, uh, you know, I'm looking for two things to make sure it's the same kids at different stages of life, because otherwise you might have a (laughs) pedophile that's that's interested in picking pictures of kids. So, but if it's the same kids at different ages, you know, their kids are important to them, their children because that's what's filling their space. Then we walked into the next cubicle and we saw technical contraptions that need to be repaired or fixed, technical stuff. And obviously IT was higher on their values. And then we went into another one and without a doubt, books, they were everywhere. Books were everywhere, stacked up and books and bookshelves and books, book, 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 book. And I looked to see if it was a common thread and it was. So I was training the executives Whenever you are interacting with somebody, to honor them and respect them enough to articulate what you would like to share with them, in terms of what the dominant value is, is being revealed in their space. If you have nothing, no other indicator. So how we fill our space tells a lot about our thing. I my office used to be filled with books. I've sold about probably twenty thousand them, but I have I have a lot of books. You know, so I've, I've read over thirty thousand books. I'm I'm constantly surrounded by books. So you could tell that the guy's, you know, a bibliophile. (laughs) So the space, the second indicator. So that's the first one. The second one is time. You find time, make time, spend time on things that are valuable to you. So if you take out your four to eight hours of sleep and you put in the rest of the day, and then you do a drone watching you day by day by day, and you look at what you spend the most time on second, most time the third most time, it will indicate what you value because you'll find a way of getting time for things that are important to you. I just finished a 10 day program, uh, 14 hours a day on, on the comparative sciences, religions and philosophy world that I just presented. The second I got through that at five in the morning, I did a bit of rest and I had a one thirty program. And then I had a five o'clock program in another country. And, uh, And so if you look at my time, there's no doubt in your mind, I spend more time than anything I do teaching. So there's, your time is second. It reveals what's important to you. Now, we want to not write down what we think it should be, what we think it ought to be, what we wish it would be, what it used to be. We only want to look at what your life is demonstrating. Your life demonstrates your values. They speak louder than your words. And many people will tell you what they think you want to hear and what society expects about what's valuable to them. But I don't go by what people say. I go by what the indicators show. And so how you spend your time. Now, if what you're spending your time on and how you fill your space, if they're honest answers, there'll be a thread. There'll be a reiteration. And you'll see a pattern emerge. And that'll tell you already Because if I look at how I fill my space, it's a computer. If I look at what's the dominant use of my computer, teaching. If I look at how I fill my time, teaching. So they're both saying the same message. Because the dominant use of my computer is for teaching, the second most dominant use is researching. The third indicator is energy. Energy, when you're doing something that's high in your value, your energy goes up, it rises. When you're doing something low in your value, your energy goes down. Just think about it. When somebody asks you to do something that's not inspiring to you, oh God! But when somebody get to do something you really love doing, you're you're full of energy. You can do it all day long. In fact, you have more energy at the end of the time doing what you love most, and have more energy drained if you're doing something you love least. So you look at what energizes you most, and what's common to the energy that goes up. And I, um, like I say, I. Have, I did a presentation. Uh, I didn't get to bed until uh, 6.45. And I started an eight o'clock conference and I did another 14 hours. And I didn't get, I, I literally had an hour and a half sleep and a rest, I wouldn't, wouldn't been laying down and knocked that baby out. So when you have, when you're doing something trying to your value, you extract an intrinsic force of energy. In fact, your mitochondria work differently going back when you're living by your highest values you're moving forward if you're living by your lower values you're moving backward in time literally paleontologically and going back in phylogeny and originally on the planet there were there were single-celled organisms that lived on sulfur and and uh, and what they call lithophiles and then later there was oxygen generating bacteria that lived off oxygen to handle oxygen So when we do our mitochondria literally go up in energy when we're living by highest values. So our energy levels go up. There's biological reference to this. The enzymes work in that fashion. So I look and measure what's highest in energy and where you have the most energy and what you always have energy for. And you never you don't have to be uh you know a stimulant to get to do it. So that's the number four is money. You make money, find money, spend money. For whatever is valuable to you but you don't have money for things that aren't if somebody comes up to you and offer you something that's not a value to you you go no thank you but no thank you but if somebody gets you give you something that you think is incredibly valuable you'll find money for it you'll get money so the hierarchy of your values will dictate your financial destiny so if you have a high value on children your money will go to your children if your high value is on fitness then go to fitness high value in traveling go to travel high value on learning books and education seminars, high value on wealth building, all your money will go into asset accumulation that will start working for you and give you passive income. So you tell me what your highest value is and I'll tell you where your money's going. So I look at where it's going. Now, some people will say, well, I got to pay the bills, man. I got to pay the the mortgage. No, there's some people that rent, don't buy a mortgage. If you're buying a mortgage, there's something valuable there for you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you're spending, if you're spending 25 or 40% of your income on a mortgage, it's because you value something about that mortgage and you wouldn't be doing it. You know, I, I had 11 homes at one time. I sold those. I, I had only one ship to me. But the point is that I, I my wife is actually the one that wanted the houses. I didn't need the houses. She was a, an astrological cancer and needed to carry her, her house with her, I think, on her back. So we had houses in every country, all kinds of places. But the point is that, that what you value, you put your money into. So that's the fourth one. Now, if there's not a reiterated pattern again, somewhere there's a lie. So I've been doing this a long time. And, and you look for that pattern. And if you if you start to see the pattern in space, time, energy, and matter, which I call the STEM, you can already get a good indication of what those values are. But number five is wherever you have the most order and organization. Whatever is highest on your value, you bring order and organization to So my knowledge is organized. I have literally a half a million pages of material that I've written organized on my computer, half a million easily. And that is organized information that's accessible here. So whatever is high in your value is organized. My finances are organized. My transportation systems are organized. Whatever I have value on is ordered. But I don't cook. <laughs> I haven't cooked since I was 24. I haven't even driven a car. I have car services. Any anything that's low on my values, I delegate. I only research writing. I don't do anything else. I, I, my girlfriend says I even delegate lovemaking to specialists. So I, I figured I'd hire, you know, Brad Pitt and you know, Gerard, Dyer, Hugh Jackman to take care of the lovemaking. And I asked my girlfriend, "Would you still love me if I did?" She said, "I would love you even more." So they don't have a problem with it. So I delegate them. But the point is, I'm joking here. Yeah, of course. <laughs> the girlfriend I have now, since my, my wife passed away, the girlfriend I have right now, I figured I better not delegate that. One. She's, yeah, a, yeah. she's pretty good. But the point is that, that I delegate the rest, and I stick to where I'm most ordered. Because disorder means missing information, according to Claude Chen. And order means full information, mindful. And in your highest values, you're mindful, and you're able to see objectively more information. Your conscious and unconscious is not split. You're actually fully conscious, and so that's the area you want to put your focus on. And so, where do you have the most order and organization? I assure you, it's going to show in the same pattern and reiterate. And the next determinant is where you spontaneously disciplined. What is it you do that nobody ever has to remind you to do? You never have to be reminded to do it. What do you spontaneously do every day? That's a very powerful question. What do you spontaneously do that you love every day that nobody has to remind you to do? And I guarantee you that's mine would be teaching. And if I'm not teaching, I'm learning. So if I look carefully, that's what's obvious. And that same pattern is showing up again. So that's the first six. Number seven, number eight, and number nine are what do you think about? What do you visualize? And what do you internally dialogue with yourself about, about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence of coming true. Now, if there's no evidence, don't write it. You know, I, I, I think about being an international sex symbol, but there's zero evidence of it coming true. That just, there's no evidence of it. None. Okay. But i i I think about being, you know, an educator and a teacher since I was 17, that's come true. So that's what I love. That's what I think about. And that's what's coming true. So you only write down what you think about, what you visualize and what you affirm the frontal cortex into the parietal region, the occipital cortex for visual and the temporal region for the auditory. You're looking at the area and how is the brain, what's it really focusing on that, how you want your life that inspires you that is coming true. And I guarantee you that same reiterated pattern is going to be smacking you in the face. It's going to be solid. The next one. So that's six plus three, that's nine. Number 10 is what do you want to converse with other people about most? I'm sure you can remember people coming up to you and saying, uh, how's your golf game or how's your kids or how's your business or how's your investments or how's your health? People always want to start engaging in a conversation about what's important to them. So what do you love conversing about? What do you initiate conversations about most? And what do you want to do it? And if you get in conversations of it, you forget time. You can talk all night about it. You want to look at what is it you love conversing about most and keep wanting to engage in conversation about most. Again, the pattern will be there. Mind is the human behavior. Anything to do with maximizing human awareness, the evolution of human consciousness, the mastery of, of uh, you know, mastery of life, I'll talk all day. The next one is what inspires you? What brings tears of inspiration to you and chills up your spine and what's common to the people who inspire you? I've been studying, writing a new book right now. It's a 1300 page book on, you know, philosophers through the ages, the wisdom through the ages, great philosophers going back from Thales and even Ames from Egypt, the mathematician. And I'm going through all their writings and their highest, the highest priority information out of their writings and summarizing some of their ideas and just elaborating on them. So those individuals have inspired me, all the Nobel Prize winners. I've, I've gone through every Nobel Prize winner that's been a, not honored the Nobel Prize. They even created a Martini Prize to outshine the Nobel Prize in amounting, which is already mention now. So mm-hmm. I basically have that as a dream. So I want to go, well, what is it that inspired me? And what are the people who inspired me and what inspires me? What inspires me is, you know, I, I see life as a giant cosmic puzzle. Every time I learn another thing that fits in and locks in and it, you feel certain about it, I want to share it with people. Sharing it with people, learning about it and, and sharing the magnificence of the universe, that brings tears to my eyes. So and, and the people who p- helped me put those puzzles together, as all the great thinkers throughout the ages, they always inspire me. So look at what's common to it, because that's obviously learning and teaching again. It's it's the same reiterated pattern that comes through. The next one is what are the most persistent and consistent goals you have that you just keep make happening? What is the most consistent, persistent, long-term goals that you have that's coming true? Now, I want to step foot in every country on the face of the earth and, and share and teach. I've reached 154 countries now speaking. I've reached billions of people in radio, television, newspaper, magazines, podcasts, you name it. Okay. So I take those off. I updated them this morning. Every city I get to speak in, I've got them record recorded. You know, every country I got it recorded. I keep everything a metric because anything that's really, really, really valuable to you metric. Anything that's not really valuable to you, you don't want to, you don't want a metric. So that's the sign you're being authentic is you're, you're wanting to monitor and get feedback on the progress of the pursuit. So what is it that you're actually that you're the goals that you've had that are actually showing evidence coming true? Those are very crucial. And the last one, and that is that what is it you spontaneously want to learn, read about, study about, uh, spontaneously want to watch videos about? What do you want to learn? I used to be a surfer. Okay. I, I, I still do a bit of surfing, but nothing like I used to. I used to do 11 hours a day. I rode the North shore. I rode, up to 40-foot waves. But I just got one of my students, uh, a gentleman named Nick, who is competing for the largest world record on what riding a wave. He's going to do a hundred and something feet in in uh, Nazareth. He's asked me to come and join him out there at the waves in October. My ship is coming into Portugal literally that week, so I'll be right there. So it's a perfect timing, but I would love to actually you know, because I've never been out in a hundred foot waves. I'd love to go out in a hundred foot waves, just to experience that, to know what it's like to be in a hundred foot wave. So, but I learned that too. That's been intriguing to me, but it's not, if I look at what I do, most of my studies on, it's on the human behavior, but that one thing, because as far as I'm concerned, riding a hundred foot wave requires mastery. And so it's the mastery component that I'm interested in why I would want to do that. Cause it's, it's what is it, what's the state of mind of the individual who is able to, you know, be present in riding a hundred foot wave.
0: Fascinating. And that was amazing. We have people asking about the 13 steps. I, I think it's a good time to direct folks because I have a lot of questions I want to dive into right now. Uh, you have a values uh, tool online. I've taken it. In fact, The value
1: determination method, the, the Martini value determination. Yep. I'm going to drop the link in here. So there's but, 13 questions I just gave you.
0: Yep. Yep. So that's drdmartini.com slash values. Uh, Highly recommend anyone listening, watching, whatever this to go through that. It'll take you, it took me about an hour to go through, but wow. I mean, you know, the, the things I thought I valued, it was, it was so clear to me when I saw what I truly highest had my highest value. Like, Oh my, yeah, that feels right. Like the things I thought were higher on that were a little bit lower and that felt right as well as I dissected it to your point. But the big thing for me, and, and I wonder about this, you talked about um, if you're not seeing patterns, then there's a lie or lies. I have to believe that that's probably one of the hardest and most yes. uh, uh, difficult things for people to overcome. What are some things that you've done? And I know you have the, the, uh, the Martini experience and, uh, and you've done this for a long time. What are some, how do you encourage or how do you get people past that, that block of needing to fill this out in a way that seems like it should be filled out as opposed to your own personal, you know, true to yourself way of doing it. I'm just curious what
1: thoughts you have there. Okay. That's a fantastic question. An important question. Most likely every one of you here have had a moment in your life. If you're single or married acting single, um, this must be a joke, um, that you've met somebody that you're attracted to maybe even enamored with or infatuated with, and um, got a little dopamine fix and put them on a pedestal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, when you do and you elevate somebody up and activate that dopamine and oxytocin and vasopressin and and endorphins and estrogen and serotonin, when those go up, you tend to put yourself down relative to them because now you're comparing yourself to somebody you've elevated and you're conscious of their upsides and unconscious of their downsides, which forces you to be more conscious of your downsides and less conscious of your upsides in comparison. When you do, you, you, you skew the balance of equity into an inequity. And whoever is up on top, the values inject into the person below. Values always go from those who are higher in power to those who have less in power in society. So what happens is you end up injecting some of their values into your life. Freud called that the superego. The superego is the injection of outer authorities values in your life. And outer authorities are people that are the authors of your life writing now your life because you're not writing it. When you do, those that are injected in cloud, the clarity of those that are spontaneous within you and you confuse yourself. And so now when somebody asks you what your values are, You've got these injected values vying for attention about what you think you should be, ought to be, supposed to be, got to be, have to be, must, and need to be, which are all, anytime you hear that in your head, you know that's not your values. It's an injected value from an outer authority that you're subordinating to. Now, whenever you look down on somebody, you do the reverse. You tend to project your values onto them because again, you see them below you, and all values go from those that are powerful to those that are least powerful. Mm. So now you project, you should, you ought to, you're supposed to, you got to, you have to, and you project the values downward. So people you look down on, you don't let their values interfere with you. You tend to be superior to, and you know, you're too proud to admit what you see in them inside you. And you go, no, I'm independent of you. I don't need you. But the people that you look up to, you depend on and you inject the values and it's the people if we walk in a mall and we see somebody that's more intelligent, we see somebody that's more successful, we see somebody that's got more wealth, more savvy relationship, more social connections, more physically fit, more inspired. The moment we give them power that way and exaggerate who they are and minimize ourselves in turn, we will inject the conforming set of values of outside influences and cloud the clarity of what it is that we do. And we will over. over not see our own self. We'll have what they call dysmorphia. I don't know if you, if you have a woman who's, let's say, attractive and she meets another woman that she thinks is more attractive, she'll accentuate how unattractive she is in comparison. And she sees a woman that she thinks less attractive, she'll exaggerate her attractiveness compared to the person that way. These dysmorphic perspectives are a result of putting people on pedestals or pits instead of putting them in your heart. That's why it's so important to love people and have equanimity and equity, to have sustainable fair exchange, to have sustainable relationships. But if you don't, the injected values of the authorities and the injected values of the mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, anybody you depend on, anybody you admire and look up to, all of those values will come into your consciousness and cloud the clarity of your own values and confuse you. And that's why people have so much difficulty with the exercise because they think what it should be instead of what it actually is. That was extremely deep. And,
0: and that made a ton of sense. In fact, I'm watching the chat go and I couldn't watch it because I had to really let that ground. That's a great point. And that is the best I've heard described about the, you know, what what, cliches like comparison is the, uh, is the, what is it? Comparison is the thief of joy and all of that. Right. You know, that's, that's a, a way Wow. All right, My mind is a little bit blown on that, so I'm just going to stop stumbling and go to my, my next question on that. But that was incredible. And we are going to start to get live questions here in just a moment, everybody. Um, something that occurs to me with you is you've, you've obviously articulated your value around teaching. Um, that has given you great success. I mean, you're, you're world renowned in your profession, for one. Financially, I know there's reward to that, of course, for two. Can you talk about, you said you delegate everything that's not out, that's not in your values. Can you give us a little bit more on that? Like, what is the, how does, so you, you do this value determination, you have a sense of what your values are. How then do you start the process of leaning into your values, especially if you're finding that maybe you're, you're, you know, you are subject to others' values. That's what you've been, you've been guiding your life by. How do you get to the Dr. D- John Martini level of on purpose, driving forward, delegating everything out and having you know, accumulating the success as a result of simply focusing on being in your values? How does that, how do you start that process?
1: Okay. Um I'm assuming, and if I'm in error, please uh, let me know. I'm assuming that most everybody on here will be entrepreneurs of some form uh, in small to medium or possibly large businesses. So it. I'm assuming that. Okay. So I'm 27 years old. I'm in clinical practice, I'm new at it and I'm doing just about whatever is needed to keep it going. And I feel somehow innately that I could use some advice on time management, managing my, my activities in time. So I went to Walden's bookstore, which existed in those days, this is 1982. And I found a book called The Time Trap by Alec McKenzie. And it still exists. It's a classic. And after devouring that book and bending the page corners and writing notes, and you know how you do in a book, I extracted and summarized it. And so maybe everybody here would like to maybe do this summary. Um, I really believe that what I'm about to share with you could potentially catalyze a great growth in your business very quickly, if that's of interest. So um, maybe get a piece of paper out or something, a blank piece of paper. So you can actually kind of outline this. So what I did is I got a piece of paper out, a series of pieces. I got a stack of papers actually. And I divided them in six columns, equal space columns, by drawing five lines down vertically. So I had six columns in the first left column. I wrote down every single thing, every single action I did in a day, from the time I got up to the time I went to bed. And I didn't generalize long, broad things like marketing. I broke it down into the actual action steps that I did moment by moment throughout the day. And I divided them into personal and professional things I did at home versus things I did at work. And I thought, to my best of my ability, over a three-month period, what might be in that, that list. Because if I just put that today, it might be different than another day. So I try to think of, over a three-month period, what might be on that list. And just really contemplated every single thing that I'm spending my time on. Because I wanted to be as honest as I can. Because, you know, if you're not in integral with yourself, you're, you're not going to really master your life. So you ask yourself, what do I really do with my time? Now, as I was listing this, I was already becoming aware that I was majoring in minors and minoring in majors right off the bat. You yeah, it just in, it is innately coming up to the surface. There's got it. That's, I'm doing a lot of time that's not really getting anything done. And I'm doing trivial stuff. And I'm thinking, why? That's what's going through my head as I'm making this list.
0: What's going on, everybody? It's Jamie. I'm jumping in real quick here because some people are listening to this podcast thinking, man, I hear this guest. I hear what they're talking about. This whole Go Abundance thing sounds pretty cool. I'd love to be a part of that. And I would say to you, if you are qualified to be part of Abundance, you're a millionaire or accredited at the very least, jump onto GoAbundance.com and just put your application and you'll get on a call. It might even be with me where we can talk about what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish and what it is to be part of this community in depth would love to have a conversation with you about that. It's been just so life-changing for me. And for those of you out there that are saying, yeah, sounds great. I would if I were a millionaire or if I were accredited, but I'm not there yet. We've got that now. We've built a program and I run it. I love, love being a part of it. I left my job for it called Emerge and Ascend. Emerge is where you got to start. It's a 12 week intensive sprint goal setting course. You're gonna get curriculum every week. You're gonna get live intervention every week. You're gonna get connection with GoBundance members every week. You're gonna get accountability from like-minded people every week. Jump into that, kill it, and we invite you to ascend, which is essentially the GoBundance mastermind without the million dollar requirement. And we actually even add in coaching to help folks find their purpose, their mission, their values. It's intense. It's it's everything all wrapped in one. So again, if you're a millionaire or you're at least accredited and you're wondering about this abundance thing and that should I, shouldn't I, just apply, throw your name in, you lose nothing. All you do is put your name into an application form, you get on a phone call, and then you decide. If you're not yet at that million dollar mark, look at Emerge. GoBundance.com slash Emerge. And what you can do as well is drop my name in there, Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, and we'll knock 200 bucks off the tuition for Emerge jump in there and we'll get you started on your journey toward being a whole life millionaire toward getting to go abundance, whatever you want. People in emerge, people in ascend, people in go abundance, all report back often the changes it's made in their lives, financially, relationally, and everywhere else. So go to goabundance.com, Check all of that out. See wherever you are, dive into that particular area of go And we'd love to see you
1: inside of the tribe. And now back to our show. I made this exhaustive list, which was multiple pages. I had a lot on my plate that I was doing. I thought that being busy was important instead of being productive at that time. I was 27. So I didn't know much that time about it. Not that 27 can't know. I just was not that bright as far as business and life management. Good student, but not life manager. When I got through the list, I then prioritized, No, I just made the list first. Then on the second column, second column, I wrote down uh, what did it produce per hour? How much money did it generate per hour? And I noticed that, um, you know, doing an exam, it came out 125 bucks, 10 minutes. So I multiplied that times six. So six times 25, another, $150, $750 $150, $750 an hour. And I put the total. And I did narratives. Okay. Took me two hours, $400. That's $200 an hour. And then I did uh, exam, I mean, uh, uh, adjustments and things I like, and I, the, the actual clinical work. And I realized, oh, it's about 1500 an hour. And then I, but I found out going through all this that my reported findings was zero per hour. Um, consultation was zero per hour. Um, administrative management, zero per hour. There's a whole lot of things I wasn't producing any money on. Mm. And then I found this one going out and speaking to a group of people to inspire them to become patients, 15,000 an hour. Mm. That was a major jump in my head. Whoa, if I'm going out and doing that, and I get six new patients, each patient's worth $3,000, that's 18,000 an hour. Mm. That's a much more effective use of my time, which, did not match what I assumed would be the most important thing I would do as a doctor. So it was a real jolt to me. Yeah. But I made a list of everything I did and all the way from zero money to the highest money. And then I prioritized it from the highest producing down to the lowest. And that's when I really saw that, yeah, my intuition was whispering to me. I wasn't listening to it about majoring in minors and minor in majors because mm-hmm. I'm spending maybe an hour a week doing this one that produces the most and I'm spending a whole lot more time doing stuff that's not producing. And it's because why? I'm asking, why am I doing that? Why on earth? Why would I want to devalue myself? This is a very important principle. Anytime you do something that's low in your values, you devalue yourself. Anytime you do something high in your values, you value yourself. And the world around you is going to reflect you. If you don't value yourself, neither will anybody in the world. That's a major realization. And if you don't value your time, nobody else is going to value your time. Wow, what a difference that made. Mm-hmm. So that was the second one. And when I looked at that, that was a pretty good aha. huh I went to the third column. And I wrote down on a 1 to 10 scale, how much meaning did it have? How much meaning did it have? On a 10, if it was a 10, it mean it was inspiring, absolutely awe-inspiring, deeply meaningful. And down below, a 1 was no meaning. There's almost zero meaning. It was a means to an end, not an end. And I just wrote it all down. And then I reprioritized that list. I prioritized that list. And because I was interested in living my life with meaning and also productivity. Productivity means that I'm doing something that serves another human being. Meaning it means it's doing something to fulfill what is valuable to me. If I'm doing something that values me, but I'm not doing something that serves anybody else, there's no income. If I'm doing something else, but done for me, I have no inspiration. And money without meaning leads to debauchery, and money with meaning leads to philanthropy. It's a basic law. So I had this realization. So then what I did, I've discovered that some of the very top things that produce the most are also the most meaningful. <laughs> oh, wow, that was a great reward for me to see that because I looked at going, the very two top things that make the most money are the two of the things that most inspire me. So I, I knew that's where I needed a target, right there. The next column, number four, was how much would it cost to delegate those actions to experts more skilled than me that would do at least the standard I would or more. And that included every cost, not just salary, but every cost every single cost to actually delegate that to some specialist. Because if I'm in my way and I'm not delegating things and extracting surplus labor value out of people and giving job opportunities, I'm not much contribution to the society. I need to give job opportunities too. Your measure of achievement is how many people you actually employ to, or at least give rise to employment. So then I realized, okay, I looked then at the spreads after I wrote them all down, what it would cost to the best of my ability. I then looked at the biggest spreads between which produced the most versus which cost the least to look at the biggest spreads. Because if I delegated those, I could make the most income off other people getting jobs. And then I could then concentrate on the highest priority things that produce the most, that give me the most meaning. And it wasn't rocket science when I got that data. The data was pretty straightforward. When I got through that, I then put the next column five. And that was how much actual time am I spending on these items, to the best of my ability. And that took a while to think it through, but I wrote them all the time that was doing it because that told me if I'm spending time over here and it's only making no money, it has no meaning. And I could delegate that. Uh, I, I, I wanted to know that. It also gave me an incentive to start charging for those things. Because I then asked myself, why am I not charging? That's my time. And I would, then I realized that I had subordinated to somebody else that wasn't doing it, not because it was smart, because they just weren't doing it because they weren't thinking. So I started to put a fee on some of those things that I never put a fee on to value the time so I could then hire somebody and make more off them doing it. And then I allowed myself to have my time valuable and they the time valuable because otherwise I'm devaluing somebody's time and my time. Nothing like not charging for their time or my time. It's like an evaluation of human beings. And it's devaluing the service, which makes people not respected and want it as much. So then what I did on the final column, sixth column, is I reprioritized it according to all the variables. I did my final prioritization. And when I did my final prioritization, I layered that into 10 layers because I had a pretty good sized list. And then I put a job description for each layer and then I went and found somebody to do that and hired them to do it. And I knew what my spread was, I knew what my cost was and I knew what I could pay them and I knew what my net would be. And then I just delegated that away. And the first time I hired somebody to do it, it took me two people that didn't didn't fit. The third person I got that did it. And then it was done off my plate. Then I hired the next person, took two people, first one didn't work out, but the second one did, off my plate. And in 18 months, from start to finish, I had my business go up tenfold. Mm. And I had a, went from a 1,000-square-foot office to a 5,000-square-foot office with five doctors and 12 staff members from one person working with me at the time. And tenfold increase in income net. And I'm now doing the two most important things that produce the most income, which is what I love doing and meaningful. And I never went back. I chose never to go back to do anything less than what I inspired by. It begs this question from me and
0: I'll, I'll ask you this and then we'll open it up. I see at least one hand up right now when you're optimized like that, right? You take this time. This is an amazing exercise. I hope everybody here does this, right? This you know, uh, something I've been doing and tinkering with, but haven't fully completed. But I hope everybody goes through this exercise that, that you just laid out. Um, but when you're optimized like that, when you're, when you're in a space where you've delegated out everything, you're leaning into your gifts, your values, what's the role of, of, so let me, let me a little bit of context we're in the hustle, uh, era, right? Like a lot of influencers talk about the grind and push and hustle and this, that, and the other. And it requires a certain amount of willpower. It seems right. Like a certain amount of push. And there's a lot of books written on that topic that I've read as well. Willpower. Does it exist? I guess in your world, if you're optimized, is it a real concept or is it fake? No, no. Don't pay attention to those things. Those people don't know what they're talking about. Can you expand on that a little bit for me? I mean, I think I've got- the. you this have to use like-
1: willpower, you're not
0: on track with what you love doing.
1: So when you feel the push of like, okay, I got to do this. That's, not, that's not you. That's a symptom, not a solution. Motivation is not the solution for humanity. It's the symptom of humanity. Intrinsic drive that spontaneously emerges inside a human being when they're doing what they love to do, they don't feel like it's work. I was having dinner with Bill Pollock who founded Drake International at a French restaurant across, in Sydney, Australia, across from the Four Seasons. And I was doing work with Bill. And he's in his eighties at the time, he's nineties now. And um, he said, you know, John, 1951, I started Drake as a temporary service, hiring young ladies to type for companies. Now I have a full service, you know, 286,000 corporations use my services around the world. I'm a very wealthy multi-billionaire today. And he said, since 1951, I've never worked a day in my life because once I figured out what I love doing and I delegated the rest away and stuck to what I'm here for, it doesn't feel like work. So if you're having to force yourself to do something, you need some extrinsic motivating factor um, to do it. You're trying to be somebody you're not to compete with somebody you are infatuated with, to eventually burn yourself out and want to escape someday. No, that's not it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, people say, it. come up to me and say, well, you're so disciplined. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm disciplined in the sense that I do the same thing every day, but it's what I love doing. So it's not like I've got to do it. I'm financially independent. I don't got to do anything. You know, I, I, I uh, I made a half a million dollars last week off just investments. I don't have to work because that's not my need. I do it because I love it. The purpose of financial independence is to do what you love because you love to, not because you have to. That's the purpose of building wealth. It's not for the fancy stuff. I don't need all the fancy stuff. I've had stuff like that. i had the penthouses. I got a magnificent yacht, biggest yacht in the world, but at the, that, that doesn't, that's not what matters. What matters is doing something that is deeply meaningful that makes a difference in people's lives that inspire you, that you go to bed with a tear of gratitude for the contribution you're making and for the fulfillment of your skills. So if you're having to force yourself to do stuff, you haven't found your
0: mission. One follow-up on that. I see a couple of hands up, guys. Put your hands up if you have questions because we're going we're to dive into the Q&A portion here. But I'm thinking about this, and, and, and I think <laughs> – I think you'll be you're the guy that can explain this, uh, you know, to my my monkey brain. So I get that. Uh uh if you if you're if you're seeking motivation, then you're not being you. What about those those situations where it's like, you know, okay, my health is is poor and I want to, I gotta force myself to the gym or force myself to eat differently
1: or better because I'm No, 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 you. no, no, no. Give me some. No, 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 no. Your health is poor because you're not living authentically. Oh, your God. physiology, your physiology, you have what is called the autonomic nervous system mm. that's overseen by the supercosmic nucleus and the hypothalamus. When you're living by your highest value, the media prefrontal cortex, which is right right there in front of it, runs that hypothalamus and keeps a circadian rhythm in order, keeps your physiology in order, balances the autonomics, which literally through transmitters and epigenetics manifest a autonomic equilibrium. A homeostasis. Claude Bernard, Walter Cannon wrote a book called The Wisdom of the Body. Claude Bernard talked about interlimelia in physiology. When you're living congruently with what you're here for, your physiology rallies. But when you're not, your physiology is designed to create autonomic imbalances and symptoms to wake you up to get you back to authenticity. So if you're trying to force yourself to be somebody you're not and creating symptoms, you can probably get, I'm 67 almost. And my blood pressure is 95, 96, over 56. Mm-hmm. And people go, but you work 18, 20 hours a day. I said, no, I do what I love 20 hours a day. That's different. So, cause they, they found that the, the in cytokines and the inflammatory components um, go up when you're doing something because you have to versus when you love to, when you're doing something you love to, you don't get inflammation. You don't have to create symptoms. But when you're not, that's when you get symptoms. So that doesn't mean you can't get symptoms for other things. You can have genetic involvement and you can, you know, there's other factors. You can eat unwisely, but people who are inspired by what they do, they don't live to eat, they eat to live. Mm-hmm. And they exercise for performance, not because of duty, or because somebody else does it, I better do it. I do, I, I do my exercise because I want to maximize performance, not because I have to. And I don't do something I have to drudge doing. Why do that? It doesn't make any sense. You'll find that the, the great athletes, the really amazing athletes, they're inspired by what they do. It doesn't seem like they're having to do it. They're doing it because they want a performance. They want an outcome. And they see it. Anytime an individual sees things on the way, not in the way, they don't have the symptoms. It's when they see things in the way and they've got to do it. Got to, have to, must, must, should, ought to, supposed to, and need to are indications you're trying to live by somebody else's values. So if you feel like you've got to go to the gym, that's not you. Find an exercise that you love doing that inspires you, but don't waste your time on something that's not, just because somebody told you you should. It's the word should,
0: right? Everybody wants to put their shoulds on you. so
1: I have no interest in should. I don't live a life by shoulds. Mm. You know, I, I don't, it's not how you live your life. You ask yourself, what is it you love to do? And you structure your life accordingly and delegate the rest away.
0: I could go hours and hours on this, but I'm going to allow some of these guys to get questions in here. So, so let's bring you up, Thomas. And again, anybody else with questions, uh, let's get you up here. Thank you so much for all of what you've given us so far, Dr. Martini. Thomas Fanner, we'll get you up here, get your question going. Go for it, brother. Hey, doc. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned um, like surrounding yourself with others that you are looking up to and that it can create an imbalance in your authentic self. So my question is, how can you surround yourself? Because like, that's a huge thing that I've done in my life is put myself around people that I want to be like. That's part of the reason that, you know, I'm here. Um, how can I do that in a way that's still honoring my authentic self and, and them as well?
1: That's a fantastic question. So thank you. Um, You might want to write this down. It's a, it's a philosophical question. And it goes back way back. At the level of the essence of the soul, everybody write that down. At the level of the essence of the soul. At the level of the essence of the soul, nothing's missing in you. The second century Gnostics called it pleroma, fullness. Fulfillment, but at the level of the existence of the senses, but at the level of the existence of the senses, but at the level of the existence of the senses, things appear to be missing. Things appear to be missing. Again, the Gnostics called that kenoma, missingness, emptiness. And the things that appear to be missing in people are all the things they're too proud or too humble to admit that they have, that they see in others, but they're too proud or too humble to admit they have within themselves. So let me elaborate on this. You can write this in your own way. Let's say you see somebody you admire, Thomas. And you think, wow, they're brilliant in this or that. And you think, well, I don't do that. I need to learn how to do that. That's because you're too humble to admit that what you see in that individual is already in you and you're blind to where it already is present. And as long as you're blind to its presence, you'll treat yourself less than. So I want you to know that nothing's ever missing in you, Thomas. It's in a form you're not honoring and recognizing already present in your life. Ralph Waldo Emerson said envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. Trying to be somebody we're not makes us second at being somebody else instead of first at being who we are. So it's not a matter of living up to them. It's about identifying through them what I admire in them. And then I dig inside myself and find out where do I have it already? Nice. When I discover I already have it inside, I thank them to revealing my magnificence and I immediately jump into being a colleague of theirs, not an admirer of theirs. And I reposition myself in the same playing playing field as they're in and opportunities immediately rise to the occasion into my life. I'll give you an example. I did this exercise. I call it owning the traits of the greats, owning the traits of the greats. I did this exercise when I wrote a book on astrophysics, I decided to do Stephen Hawking. And I I wanted to, everything that I admired in him, I wanted to go find out where it was in me. And so I listed quite a few things and I looked and I found them all in my own form, in my own values, not his values, my values, but the same trait. So if it's perseverant, and he's perseverant in in astrophysics, where am I perseverant? Human behavior. If he's ingenious and innovative and creative in astrophysics, where am I ingenious and creative? Human behavior. So I wanted to go in and find out where I had every single thing that I saw in him. So I didn't see him above me. I saw him as a reflection of me in his own area of life, according to his values, because no two people have the same values. When I did that, that was October, 2018, when I finished that exercise. Seven months later, 2019, I was in London doing an interview for CNN. And CNN, the lady asked me afterwards, says, Dr. Martin, I really enjoyed our interview. I would like to know if you would like to be, or would be willing to be in a movie that I'm producing, um, would you be one of the people in the movie? And I said, I'd love to tell me about the movie. I'm doing the 12 most influential people in the 21st century. And I said, wow, I definitely would love to be in that. And she said, I said, who is, who else is in there? She said, Stephen Hawking is the first person she mentioned. And she said, Robin Williams and Michael Douglas and uh, a number of other people, Anthony Quinn and a bunch of people. So I thought, wow. And seven months after doing that exercise on him, Now I'm in a movie with him. Wow. Okay. Now I did that recently on another, another wealthy billionaire. And literally in a week and a half, 10 days later, a lady from London contacted me named Catherine. And she says, I'm working with a gentleman named Myron who has about $11 billion and he knows about your work. And he wants to converse with you about doing some collaboration with some high net worth individuals that are having at least sent to millionaires into billionaires to have you do some troubleshooting for them on a percentage of whatever that adds to their business or saves them in their business, which would be 15%. If you can help them save a billion dollars, you can make $15 million to $150 million really quick. And I said, fantastic. And I, because I own the traits of those individuals, I the playing field went up. So, so it's not about envying somebody. It's not about imitating and being second being somebody. It's about using what I see in them, because here's why. Basic principle in psychology is that whatever you admire in another individual, you have already in your life, but you're too humble to admit you have it. So they're brought into your life to inspire you, to let you know that you have what you see in them already, but you're not honoring it. And your intuition is trying to get you to bring that up to the surface, but you're afraid yet to say it. And the same thing on the other side, when you resent somebody, they're reminding you of things you feel ashamed about, but don't admit it. That's why you don't want to be around them. So whatever you see on the outside is a reflection of what's inside. And until you can own your hero and your villain, you can't master your life. You got to be able to own both sides, the hero and the villain, the saint, the sinner, the virtue, the vice, all the above. Because the higher you rise in society, the more pairs of opposites of value systems will be showing around the world. And you're going to be labeled both hero and villain as you go to the top. You know, Donald Trump is a hero villain, right? Biden is a hero villain. You don't make it to the top unless you can embrace just as much villain as hero in the pursuit of your mission. Take no credit, take no blame, just keep focused on chief fame is the name of the game. So that's why I don't want to, It's nothing wrong with hanging out with amazing people. I'm all for that. That's smart. But to not envy them, but to go and find out where you have what you have that's equal to them and then contribute to them as much as they want to contribute to you. Because otherwise, why would they want to stay with you? If you don't believe you have something of value, you're going to be the underdog and underdogs always give away in the negotiation table. You want a fair exchange in all negotiation negotiation tables. That's what's sustainable.
0: awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Great question, Thomas. Thanks for that. And that was a, that was a deep answer. I I wrote down rewatch, so I'm going to have to go back and dissect that one again. That was amazing. Uh, Mr. Began, let's get you up here and uh, and, uh, and get your question going.
1: Yeah, this question might've already been asked, but I'm, I'm on like five pages of notes. So I'm going to try to actually ask a question and not ramble. Um, but at the beginning you said that people act in order of their values and then you showed us 13 ways that we can identify what our values are um, but i'll try to make this as broad as possible so everyone can relate but let's say you're somehow influenced or brainwashed by society's values or your family's values and i guess the question might be how do you Find out what you actually value and not something that was brought on you at some point in your life and then how can you let others not cloud that going forward yeah anybody you put on a pedestal is going to cloud it to frustrate you enough with self-depreciation until you stand up on your own two feet so it's designed that way that's not a weakness that's not a mistake you are designed to self-depreciate the second you over-exaggerate the importance of other people.
0: Hmm.
1: We're not here to put people on pedestals or in pits. We're here to put them in our hearts as, as, as equals in that respect. Now society, let's just stop and look at society. The majority of people in society are not Nobel prize winners. The majority of people in society are not financially independent people majority of people in society are not leaders in business or spiritual leaders. Majority of people are not Olympic medalists. So if you want to go and subordinate to the average group, just know that you just sacrificed your life for mediocrity. That's simple. And if the people that you have in your family are not people that you would pay for consulting for, don't listen to them. Because they have a different set of values and you're not here to live by other people's values. Now, that doesn't mean you can't respect them in their own values. It doesn't mean you can't communicate what you would love to do in a way where they win out of it so they don't try to use emotional blackmail on you. But you're not here to live and subordinate to anybody's values. And the very people that want you to, because everybody is projecting their values on you and trying to get you to live in their values so they have less discomfort. That's just normal. But if you can communicate what you dream about in a way where they win out of it and liberate yourself, the very people that want to change you initially are the very people that honor you later. So it's just the ability to endure the first ridicule, violent opposition until you're self-evident, as Chopin and Gandhi said, having the courage to walk the path. It's called an unborrowed visionary. You're not borrowing your vision from anybody else. You're going within and letting the vision on the inside be greater than all opinions on the outside. I've had lots of people. Can I share a funny story? Not funny, but please, interesting. Please. Yeah. When I first came back from Hawaii, I was a long-haired hippie. And I was illiterate. I didn't read until I was 18. And I eventually took a GED. And I, I passed it somehow miraculously. I, I mean, it was, I surely guessed. It was one of those miraculous things. I then tried to go to school. And I was carpooling with this guy 30 miles to go to the school. And this guy wanted to be an engineer and his dream is to draw and create uh, magnetic trains. That was his dream. I wasn't an engineer type. I wasn't interested in magnetic trains, but I was impressed by his dream and his drawings of magnetic trains for the future. This is in 1980. This is 1973 when he drew them. And I, he'd asked me what I wanted to do. I said, I want to be a teacher and travel the world. And we all just had these dreams. And one day we picked up this guy that got a ride with us. He was, was a sort of guy I knew, wasn't close friend. Sort of the guy knew, wasn't close friend, but he asked if he could just tag along and get a ride. But he was came from a wealthy family and kind of looked down on us like, you know, and somehow we were talking about the trains and our teaching, and he listened, he goes, you guys, that's crazy. That's, you're not, you know, you come from a small town. You're, you don't even, you're not too bright that, that, that you're never going to do that. That's pipe dreams and everything else. And he really kind of cut it down. And I remembered that, but there was a part of me that's going, I don't feel that. I feel inside this is sort of a destiny and I don't feel like I'm going to stop on this one. So I just took his position, you know, listened to it, but didn't make much reaction to it. And that was in 1973. And three and a half years ago, I was doing some, you know, YouTube thing that got on a podcast kind of thing, a live webinar, I guess it was. And somebody got on our blog, this guy that I hadn't seen since 1973. And he gets on the blog. He says, I don't know if you remember me, but I wrote to school with you in 1973 and I was an arrogant guy. And all I know is you did it, man. So you want to be able to say in your life, I lived an exemplified, an authentic life that was intrinsically driven, that inspired me to show other people they can do the same. Because otherwise you fit in and you tell people that's how you're supposed to do fit into what people expect. There's a great video that I hope everybody gets. It's online. It's called Conformity and it relates to Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death, which is a Pulitzer prize winning piece. If you get a chance to watch this video, it's only 25, 30 minutes. It's a very worthy book. I mean, a thing to watch. If you get to read his book, that's great, but watch this video Conformity and just dash Ernest Becker and find this thing and uh, watch this video. And it shows why people conform instead of stand out. He said, because of our fear of death, or because of our infatuation with the fantasy who you want to be, we either conform to the multitude or we stand out in order to find our immortality. And it's a fantastic piece on the realization that if you don't go the path of the individual, you'll conform and be lost in the crowd. And you don't, and everybody has a yearning desire to want to make a difference. And you can't make a difference fitting in. You make a difference standing out. So first they're going to ridicule you. Then they're going to oppose you. Then they're going to do all this, but they're going to honor you when they find out that you are on a mission and you went out and made a difference in this planet. So you want to think long-term, not immediate gratification, because immediate gratification cost you your life.
0: Amazing. Steven, great question, man. I appreciate that. I think that was an amazing story too. So thank you for that. Uh, Dr. DeMartini, Um, I want to ask one more one more question before, and then I want to hear more about you know for folks where they can find more about you content courses, all of that. I want I want people to know uh, where to reach you and where to find you know your content. I'm thinking of this in terms of uh, uh, people in here have partners, business partners, uh, married. We've had some discussions, you know, authentically or, or vulnerably about, you know, sort of enrollment with their spouse around their path of personal development or whatever. And it, and it inherently talks about a value conflict. I'm assessing this and I could be wrong. I'm going to obviously yield to you, but I feel like in that, in that scenario, it's less somebody taking on the other person's values um, and more that their values are in direct conflict, or at least they seem to be. What advice or how do, how do married couples, business partners or whatever navigate when there is a value conflict? Is it a death knell for that relationship, for that partnership, or is it merely awareness and acceptance of one another's values? I'm just kind of curious if you could opine a bit on
1: that. Okay. First of all, there's no, there's, there is no value conflict unless you project your values onto them and expect them to live in yours. Or they project their values onto you and expect you to live in theirs that's when the conflict begins yeah that's it now what you do is you first determine what your highest values are and what your life demonstrates and you get really clear on that this takes you know an honest evaluation of yourself and you can start on that on the website i tell people to do it again a week from now a week from now a month from now and every quarter to be looking at the pattern of evolution of your values because they can evolve Then you do the same thing on your spouse. And I don't want to say husband and wife because some gender uh, issue will come up today. I have to be careful about that. I had a lady that was doing an interview and she says, you can't use husband and wife anymore. I said, well, I can, but it's going to offend people that don't want to use those terms. Right. right. So that's okay too. I have to give me a chance to learn and adapt to the new gender ideas. But in the process of doing it, once you then determine her values or his values, now you sit down and do a, a very powerful exercise. It's one of the most powerful exercises that'll change a relationship in a very short period of time. You take your top three, you take their top three and you write them down on a piece of paper on the side upper portions of the paper, front and left, right and left. In the center of the paper, you now answer these questions. How specifically is her highest value helping me fulfill mine? because all relationships strive for androgyny. All relationships strive for androgyny. And there are seven areas of life, spiritual, mental, career, financial, family, social, and physical. And so testosterone and tradition has made intellect, business and finance just traditionally masculinized. And family, social and physical beauty and health traditionally feminized. One's testosterone and the other is estrogen, but all relationships drive for androgyny. So if you're really focused on business and intellect and finance, you're going to get somebody that wants to have kids socialize and look good. That's the way it is designed to make sure that there's procreation and production, what I call a, you know, production and reproduction. So it's designed that way. It's not a mistake. It's not conflicting. It's complementary. It's complementary. It's the pairs of opposites to make androgyny. Now, if you're more androgynous, you're going to need an androgynous mate. Cause if you're empowered in all seven areas, you're not going to want to have a mate that's not empowered in all seven areas. You're going to feel like you're, you're not with somebody that's a match. But if you're polarized, you're going to get the other pole. And that's normal. The purpose of marriage is not happiness. Only ignorant people think that. The purpose of marriage is to find somebody to delegate low priority crap to. And then they delegate low priority crap back to you. So you're both delegating the things you don't want to do that's low on your values, that's high on theirs that they want to do. And you work together in an androgynous pursuit. But if you ask yourself how specifically is what your, so her highest value is Mm -hmm. helping you fulfill what your highest value is and answer that 30 to 80 times, 50 times would be great. And don't say, I don't know, I can't find it. They need to change because that's a self-righteous projection of your values onto them. And I guarantee that'll kill the relationship. Mm -hmm. But if you find out how what they're dedicated is serving you, there's nothing to change. People want to be loved for who they are, not for what you are supposed to make them. So if you answer that question, a lot of ahas will come up and you realize I don't need to fix that. I don't need to change that. Thank you. I love you, honey. Thank you. Now you do it in reverse. Take your highest values, highest value, how does it help them fulfill theirs? 30 to 80 answers, 50 would be ideal. And as you get that 50th one, you're going to have tears in your eyes and go, wow. And now you have a repertoire of how to communicate what you want in her values. So she gets what she wants by what you're getting, what you want. Mm -hmm. If you don't know how to, if there's no connected values there, there's no communication. You have an alternating monologue where you're talking down when she's not listening and she's talking down when you're not listening. Alternating monologues are destruction the family. But dialogue is powerful. So you make the link, the first one, then you go to the second highest value of hers to your highest value and your highest value to the second highest value.
0: Mm.
1: And then her second highest value her your second highest value to her fi- highest value and back and forth. Then the second to the second, you say you just go down the list and this may take three hours, total three hours. I guarantee you when you're done, you're going to put your arms around the individual and hold them in your arms with your tears in your eyes. And then you realize there's nothing to fix. There's something to appreciate and you don't have to change your values and she doesn't have to change yours. You now realize that she's doing exactly what's necessary. She's raising a beautiful family that are probably going to be working with you in the future. I have three kids working me in my business.
0: Yeah. And one, had a baby this, one had a baby this morning. Oh, geez. Well, congratulations. First, yeah. first grandchild
1: or no? I'm, I'm grandpa this morning. 929 this morning. Well, I really honestly appreciate you being here. Is that Elena? No, that's Brisha. It's Brescia had a baby today. Well, they're at the hospital. We can't even visit the room. It's oh. only the husband, only the, the partner. Got but that, when they come home, we'll see them. Now, congratulations! Sir. that's amazing. Yeah, they went there at early in the morning, and nobody even knew about it. And so all of a sudden, they told us we have a baby. Well, nobody even woke us up and said, "Well, we were didn't know when it was going to come and what was happening." We just had to go to the hospital.
0: At at the risk of being gender specific, boy or girl?
1: Girl. <laughs> yeah, her <laughs> name her name is uh, Aurora Joy.
0: Beautiful. My my sister in law's name is Aurora. It's a beautiful name. Yeah, great great name. So so
1: making the links, and the greater the number of links probably the longer the relationship because now you have something to communicate because you can't relate to them. They are designed to have different sets of values. I jokingly say the purpose of a marriage is to find somebody that talks about things. that's boring to you to make sure you both go to sleep at night to get rest. (laughs) That's supposed to be a joke, but some truth to that. There's some truth to it though. It's funny because it's true
0: kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, this is amazing. And look, you, you've touched on so many different, you know, in, in this GoBundance and Ascend community, we have these these pillars around health, around relationships, around, you know, building wealth, around contribution. Um, and I, I feel like you've touched so deeply on so many of these pillars and and given us given us such amazing ways for us to move forward authentically. And, and it sounds like it boils down to that. The best version of a human is the person who's aligned specifically with their authenticity. And you've given tools, tactics, and, you know, we'll talk here in a second about other, other options you have for folks to find that. So we talked already, if you want to repeat that, I'd appreciate it about your uh, values determination. If you can go repeat that site and then give us anything else that you think we should explore well- uh,
1: in your world. The, the value determination process online, which is on drdmartini.com, you'll see, determine your values and go there and it'll take you through it. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's and great. You can fill it out. It's private. You can store it. You can come back to it, take a look at it, which I would recommend watching it over time and looking at the evolution of the values and looking at the evolution of your own honesty with the answers. That's what's interesting, too, because when you first do it, you want it to be a certain thing instead of what it is. And so you have to learn about knowing thyself. But once you are willing to be yourself and love yourself, you'll do something extraordinary with your life. So that's a valuable exercise. There's a book called The Values Factor that could also supplement that if that's a value. But I think as an example from what we've just described here, I think people are maybe getting a glimpse of how important values are. Most people think of morals when they think of values, but morals are survival strategies, not guidances for life. And I, and I could go off on a whole day on that, but I, I wouldn't do that. But um, we're not here to live in the shoulds and ought tos of tradition who have, that is formulated by individuals who um, just happen to have some power. We're here to be authentic and find the people that have power, level the playing field by owning the traits the greats, and then follow our own path and change the course of history, and then empower ourselves to such a degree that we get to guide and influence the value structure of society. Amazing. Uh, Amazing. Well, I look forward to seeing you, I
0: believe, the first weekend in August, if I'm not mistaken, for uh, the, the, the Martini experience. I'll be, I'll be <laughs> I'm really excited for that. Yeah, the Breakthrough Experience. Uh, Yes. This was a high for me. I had this date on the calendar for, you know, over a month since we were, uh, since your, your team graciously booked you on this, uh, on this, uh, uh, for this event, um, for sure, we'll be taking your learnings and, and p- pushing those forward as a community. And, uh, I really do appreciate you coming on today. It's, uh, it's, a, especially on the day of your, you know, you become a grandfather. So we appreciate you
1: being here. Yes. Thank you. Um, so hopefully I don't know if our, how our time's doing, but I hopefully okay. that I was a contribution today and, um, thank you all for being receptive and dedicating your lives to doing something more extraordinary. And, you know, as the old saying goes, those that need it the most do it the least, and those who need it the least do it the most. So it's the individuals that spontaneously get out there and keep mastering their lives that leave their mark in the world. So you're the next generation of leaders. So congratulations on that.
0: Amazing. Amazing. I want to ask everybody once more uh, from the Ascend group to to give uh, Dr. Demartini a proper exit here. So on the count of three, two, one, please unmute. We'll let him know how you feel about him today. Three, two, one, go for it.
1: Ooh, thank you. Thanks, Doc. Doc. Thank you very much. Well done, Doc. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing, amazing. Thank Dr. Demartini, thank Great you so sir. much
0: for being on today. Uh, saved you a couple minutes off. Hopefully you can you can call and see how your new grandbaby's doing. And, uh, yep, that's, that's uh, exactly again.
1: what I'm going to do before I get the next uh, meeting.
0: There you go. Thank you for all you put out into the world. Truly appreciate it on behalf of me, my wife, and this whole community. And uh, thanks again for having it. Thank you. I look
1: forward to seeing you soon. And thank you all. Love you. Thank you all. Beautiful. We'll see you. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Thank you.
0: The wrong tribe confounds. The right tribe compounds. Get your free copy of the runaway bestseller, Tribe of Millionaires, a $20 value at tribeofmillionaires.com free. Just pay the shipping. That's
1: tribeofmillionaires.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Go Abundance podcast. We hope to see you at a live event in the near future. If you're new to us, here's a quick explanation of our programs. Number one, Emerge, a web-based journey for millionaires to be. Number two, Ascend an interactive mastermind the next stage of our journey number 3 go abundance elite the original tribe of millionaires number 4 go abundance champions 5 million net worth and above number 5 go abundance women a tribe of amazing badass women for detailed information on all 5 of these simply find us at goabundance.com until then grab life big